Tana, Chachachana, Tatatana Papawa Matsatsanzaga, Shasasa Aya, Jalala Shasa, Akakashap Chachari Naru Naru Senzo, looking to me some Buddha, take a well-known way into his Chitoyu Chisachisonto. Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. That was the Tibetan alphabet in rap. I'm Graham Smith, lecturer at the Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies in the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Today we'll be talking about the politics of language on the Tibetan plateau. We're joined by Gerald Roche, an anthropologist who studies minority languages and lived on the Tibetan plateau for eight years. We're also joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, foreign correspondent in China for 10 years with the BBC and NPR. Gerald, Louisa, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hi. Hi. So, Gerald, would you like to tell us a little bit about what we just heard and the significance of it? Right. So what we were listening to was a Tibetan pop song, a rap song, and the, the, the clip that we heard specifically was someone rapping the letters of the Tibetan alphabet. And what's interesting about this is that he's not the only person to do that in contemporary Tibetan pop music. It's actually somewhat of a kind of a fad over the last, let's say, five or six years for people to just drop the Tibetan alphabet in, in, in their music. And it's extremely popular. And I think it's interesting because it tells us something about the way that people think and feel about the Tibetan language inside uh, China today and the place that it has in Tibetan identity. So why would you wrap the Tibetan alphabet to an outsider that sounds like a very strange thing to do? Why not form complete words? Right. Well, the, I guess the Tibetan alphabet is kind of seen as being the root of Tibetan identity. You know, the, the letters of the alphabet, that's the absolute minimum that you can break Tibetan identity down into. And because it has this sort of minimal atomic quality, it's therefore become a really powerful symbol of what it means to be Tibetan. And that's important because Tibetans are so different from one another in ways that might not be apparent to um, outside observers, I guess. And you spent a lot of time looking at the languages outside the Tibetan mainstream, so mm. what might be called um, minority languages within a minority. Right. Could you tell us a little bit more about those languages and, and what sort of uh, situation they're in at the moment? Sure, yeah. So I, I've been researching uh, just in the last couple of years what I call Tibet's minority languages. These are languages spoken in Tibet or in the Tibetan areas of China, let's say. And, uh, but they're, they're not Tibetan and they're not Chinese. They're kind of a group of other languages from diverse stocks. And one of the first things that I w have been trying to do is just sit down and count how many of these languages there are, which is really, it seems like a straightforward thing to do, but actually ends up being exceedingly complicated. But basically, we can bookend it with a low and a high estimate. So I would say the low estimate, which is the one promoted by uh, the Chinese state, would be that there are 14 languages which are not Tibetan and not Chinese spoken throughout the Tibetan areas of China. The, the high estimate would be 60 or maybe 65 uh, different mutually uh, unintelligible languages spoken across Tibet. And that kind of comes from 
the newly published work of the international linguistic community. But it seems so peculiar that it's impossible even to count the languages. Are they really that different from one another? So it's really difficult to say how different one language is from another. There's no kind of standard measure where it's like, oh, this is 30% different from that or 50% different from that. But we can say that the languages are significantly different in that they belong, in some cases, to completely different language families. So that would put them at a level of difference from, say, as different as English is from Finnish, because they belong in completely different language families, or as different as English is from any um, Indigenous Australian language. So I think we have some audio that you've collected of different people saying the same sentence in different dialects. Could you just tell us what, what we're going to hear? Oh, gosh, it was something horrifically complicated, like my mother told me that the black dog has just given birth behind the house. <laughs> so the idea was... A commonly used phrase then. Well, the idea was is that I wanted, I wanted it to be a non-intuitive sentence. I wanted it to be a sentence where people... Uh, they couldn't guess what it was, right? Because there's a lot of borrowing across the languages. So often people will hear a keyword and say, he's talking about a cow. So I know what that language is, right? So a completely complex, unintuitive sentence that no one really would have said before. I think you succeeded. <laughs> Great. Let's, let's have a listen. <laughs> The traditional understanding has always been that there are three main Tibetan languages. Are you saying that's completely wrong? Um, yes, right. I, I would say that. So there's two separate issues there. One is that the the idea that Tibetan is three separate language three separate dialects is somewhat like the idea that Chinese is one language with several dialects, and um, so I think if you ask most uh, linguists who study Chinese languages, they would say that 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 approach is you know it tells you more about Chinese views of what is a language, and I would say that the same is true of Tibetan, that the idea that Tibetan is a single language with three dialects uh, that tells you more about Tibetan uh, politics of language and cultural views on what a language is and isn't. So just as a kind of um, an antidote to that idea that Tibetan is one language with three dialects, there's a, a French linguist, Nicolas Tornadre, who spent his life studying linguistic diversity just amongst the Tibetan. And, and he says that there are actually probably around 50 languages and over 200 dialects within Tibetan itself. And and that's not even touching the issue which I research, which is these minority languages within Tibet. Mm. And the idea that there may still be some undiscovered languages out there, maybe just a handful, but certainly some. So the, there's a nice story behind this one. Uh, uh, a Japanese linguist that I've been working with, Hiroyuki Suzuki, he has been in Norway recently. And during the Tibetan New Year, he was at a, uh, a party of the Tibetan community in Norway. And while he was enjoying himself there and in conversation with someone, uh, the person happened to mention about an interesting dialect spoken in his hometown, which is an area that's very difficult for outside researchers to access. And on further conversations with this person, it turns out that this interesting dialect is uh, possibly three or five uh, distinct languages, in fact. So there's still a lot 
uh, to be researched in this area. And that's incredible. I, I do some field work in Papua New Guinea where famously mm. they have over 800 languages. Right. But no one, almost no one speaks of undiscovered languages there now. So right. it seems incredible that in a modern state like China, you could still have undiscovered ones. Why isn't the state taking interest in uncovering these? That's a very complex issue. China has an excellent linguistic community. There's no doubt about that. And they have, especially since the, uh, since the 80s, but particularly into the 90s and the early 21st century, really been working hard to document uh, these languages. So there was a book series which is called The Newly Discovered Languages of China. Why aren't they doing that as thoroughly in Tibetan areas? I think it's, uh, a lot of it has to do with a kind of sensitivity to Tibetan concerns, actually, that there are significant elements of the Tibetan intellectual elites, the Tibetan kind of uh, public intellectuals, the religious figures and so on, to uh, promote the idea of Tibetan as a single language, the Tibetan as a uh, Tibetan people as a single people with a shared language, of uh, Tibet as a place which is culturally and linguistically homogenous and united. And I think that the the Chinese state and the Chinese linguistic community is in some ways um, reacting to that situation and that there's there's maybe resistance to the idea that they should be going in there and discovering new languages and upsetting that apple cart. We often talk about the Chinese nationalist project in terms of the homogenization of minority languages within China, that you can classify languages and thus, in a way, classify ethnicities. You mentioned Tibetan intellectuals. Is there, if you like, a similar interest on the part of Tibetan intellectuals to make the Tibetan plateau linguistically Tibetan? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that there is. It's certainly not a common desire of every Tibetan public intellectual in China today. I, you know, I wouldn't want to paint them all with the same brush and say that they're all speaking with one voice, but it's absolutely emerged as one of the most significant intellectual trends in Tibetan in Tibet in the last ten years. I would say the promotion of uh, standard Tibetan language and the promotion of that language as the core of Tibetan identity. And is it because they they feel there's perceived to be a threat linguistically? Yeah, so I I would say that there's kind of two underlying um, events which have really promoted this kind of this new trend amongst Tibetan intellectuals. One would be the you have from the year two thousand this um, state led development project in Tibetan areas of China, the Shibu Dakaifa, which has seen not only kind of uh, road, rail, and electricity penetrating to the Tibetan areas in a way that they have never done so before. But at the same time, you also have uh, the involvement in compulsory mass education for the first time. So what you really see in Tibetan areas in the last uh, 15 years is really the emergence of a sort of a classical modernization project in the area. And that has really seen the promotion of... of um, modern standard Chinese, and uh, through the education system, through the media, uh, through in-migration of people coming along those newly built roads, through out-migration of Tibetans going to do perform labor and so on. So the, 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 the sense of threat has really emerged from those kind of state-led modernization developments. But the second one is the events of 2008 and the riots that started in Plaza in, in March and then spread throughout all of Tibet. 
And a lot of the people that I, I know in Tibet, they really speak of 2008 as a moment of awakening, of a moment of uh, really gaining a greater and deeper sense of their Tibetan identity. And so I think those, those two things in combination have really pushed the, the issue of language to the forefront of Tibetan politics and Tibetan debate today. So are Tibetan intellectuals actually actively discouraging people from speaking in, in different other non-Tibetan languages? Is that what you're saying? Um, I think that there are some Tibetan intellectuals that are, that are doing this. I would say far more common, however, is the promotion of the idea that to be Tibetan, you have to speak Tibetan. And to speak Tibetan means to speak a particular type of Tibetan. Um, I think that is far far more common and far more problematic because uh, to to resist that is to res- to is to resist your Tibetanness to some extent. The promotion of uh, you know the, this kind of negative discriminatory attitudes towards minority languages in Tibet that that certainly does happen, but it, at the same time it provides a, a you know a fulcrum for resistance. For example, in the area where I'm working now on a language in northeast Tibet. Um, where in one of the four villages where the language is spoken, the, there, there is a university professor from that village who is actively pushing people to stop speaking their language and to switch to a form of Tibetan. So he's, he's um, influenced the teachers in the local primary school to ban the language in the school. He's, the teachers have then asked the people in the home to stop speaking the language to the children at home so that it doesn't ruin their chances in school. At the same time, the professor is also holding extensive classes during the holidays on adult literacy, uh, cultural education on what it means to be Tibetan, uh, and, and things like this. So I think that's one, that's one example of how this actually works in practice. So along that theme, we might listen now to what might be called some Tibetan hate speech on the part of a monk. So what the person is talking about is he's insulting a group of Tibetans who speak a minority language as their first language. They're bilingual in Tibetan, but their first language is non-Tibetan. Um, so he, he's talking about them and he's sort of accusing them of being imperfectly or incompletely Tibetan. Um, he starts out the speech by saying, not only are you not Tibetan, but I would also not include you amongst human beings, right? And then he goes on to explain why. And he's basically saying, well, you don't speak Tibetan. Uh, you don't speak Tibetan. You don't speak Chinese. The clothes that you wear are not Chinese clothes. They're not Tibetan clothes. You practice Tibetan culture, but you're selling it to Chinese people. So always making this contrast between you're not this, you're not, you're not that, right? And um, and then it comes down to the language, and he says, you know, your language doesn't make any sense. It sounds like gibberish and babbling and nonsense uh, when you're talking on WeChat. Uh, he even says, you know that you have a whole minute to speak. Why don't you use up all that time? What's wrong with your language that you can't even speak for an entire minute? That's absolute proof of backwardness. If you, ca- <laughs> if you can't use WeChat properly, then you're indeed lawful. Yeah, exactly. Is it difficult when you see people not wanting to speak these languages that you've uh, invested all this time in studying? It, look, it's really difficult. And it's very difficult for me to do this research and also to be 
sympathetic to the survival of Tibetan culture and Tibetan identity. For example, I, you know, I couldn't have done this research when I was living in China and working amongst Tibetan people, not just because it, it's politically sensitive in the context of the Chinese state, but also amongst Tibetans. The idea that there are these languages, that they are endangered, that they are endangered in part because of the politics of Tibetan people themselves, uh, all of these things are very um, controversial. And these kind of tensions come up whenever I'm uh, in China, when I'm in Tibetan areas and whenever I talk to Tibetan people, these kind of tensions where, well, if you support these languages, then it means that you don't support the Tibetan people. If you if you support these languages, then it means that you don't support the Tibetan language. Um, there's really no way around those tensions, I think. And it's interesting because this homogenization goes against many well-known proverbs in Tibetan itself. One you've written about mm -hmm. is that people who drink from the same river speak the same language and right. people who drink from different rivers speak different languages. Yep. So it's codified in well-known Tibetan proverbs that right. it's okay to speak different languages. That's right. And it's not just in the proverbs, it's actually in the whole range of kind of Tibetan cultural templates that, that are really open to and respectful of diversity. And that's part of why this transformation that's going on now is so tumultuous is that it's really... Um, in order to establish a shared Tibetan identity, in some ways it has to pull apart the fabric of Tibetan culture itself to act against these sort of more respectful and open and tolerant attitudes towards diversity amongst Tibetan people in order to establish shared identity, common culture and common language and so on. So in, in that way, it's sort of a classical case of the transformations of nationalism like we saw in, in Europe and all sorts of places around the world. But it's What's interesting is that it's a nationalism happening inside another state within China. What role is Tibetan religion playing in this process of homogenization? I think that one thing that the, the religious institutions lend to this is the sense that Tibetan language is, is a sacred thing. And that really lends a potency to Tibetan identity based on a common language that it might not have otherwise. You know, uh, just a couple of examples the, in the ways in which Tibetan language is sacred. Uh, you would never place a Tibetan book on the floor. It always has to be placed up up high. Um, the, there have been all sorts of controversies about people having tattoos of the Tibetan language, of uh, shoes with Tibetan written on them and so sort of, I mean, very controversial in ways that it's difficult for us to imagine where you can, you can put a book on the floor and step on it with your Adidas shoe that has the English language written on it. Uh, those things in the Tibetan context would be absolutely unimaginable, right? But Tibetan is sacred because it's the vehicle for Buddhism. It's the vehicle for the truth that leads to enlightenment. And so, you know, just by... Uh, using Tibetan in religious contexts, you, you're lending potency to this this kind of identity. So where does Chinese state policy towards language and education, where does it fit in into all of this? I think the, the impacts of Chinese state policy are really contradictory in very interesting ways because on the one hand, Chinese state policy uh, very clearly and deliberately um, uh, promotes... Putonghua promotes modern standard Chinese at the expense of minority languages. And this is visible all throughout China um, in, in the huge shift 
away from minority languages and towards modern standard Chinese. So that approximately 50% of Chinese languages now have a, of China's languages now have a declining number of speakers. On the other hand, uh, Chinese state policy also vigorously and I would say even aggressively promotes minority languages in certain contexts. And so that we see that the Tibetan language um, is promoted by certain organs of the Chinese state in particular contexts. So, for example, they have a state-led committee on language standardization in China. They promote the development of uh, electronic technologies for the Tibetan language, and they promote Tibetan language education in a way that undermines those minority languages. So to say, to, to, to imagine that Chinese state policy only has a single role in this situation kind of um, overlooks the complexity and the contradictoriness of Chinese state policy, the fact that it works towards two opposing goals at the same time. But it sounds like much of what they're doing with Tibetan language is also using linguistic control. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think what they're doing in promoting Tibetan language, they're doing it in, in a way to uh, gain the support of Tibetan intellectuals and Tibetan cultural elites. So they're promoting it in the contexts um, that uh, are seen as most favorable by, by Tibetan elites. And, and, and that's a way of you know, controlling the people through the elites. And, I mean, to throw it forward, the pace of modernization is picking up. And some of these languages that you're talking about have a handful of speakers. I think you wrote about one which had nine speakers left. Right. I mean, what do you see going forward? Is there really no hope for these languages to continue, given the fact that there is this sort of political project on both sides, by both on the Chinese side and amongst Tibetans themselves mm. against minority languages. I, I prefer to be optimistic about these things wherever possible, I guess. And I think that there are encouraging signs that are starting to appear. So, for example, specifically that language with nine speakers left has been the subject of a revitalization project over the last, I think, uh, so let's say since the summer of 2015, that the community has expressed the desire to bring the language back into the homes, back into the mouths of children, and so on. Um, for another example, when I was in Qinghai recently, and in an area where uh, a, a type of Mongolian is spoken by Tibetans, and I was speaking with a woman who was part of a sort of grassroots cultural organization uh, specifically for mothers to transmit traditional culture to their children. And they had a WeChat group where they were teaching each other Mongolian so that they could teach it to their children. I think these kind of developments are, are extremely positive, and I really hope that they are what will be leading the trend in the years to come. Whether that's actually going to happen is hard to say. I think the challenges that these minority languages are facing are are extreme. The development is only going to pick up in these areas as China moves towards this uh, one belt, one road program. Tibet's going to become a transport hub for China's push into Central Asia and Southern Asia. Tibetan communities are, are going to continue facing these challenges of deepening modernization. I think really only if more open and tolerant 
attitudes take hold in this process, attitudes that see identity being based on diverse language practices rather than unified language practices, only if those kinds of attitudes take place are these languages going to be able to uh, live on through this really difficult period in the future. And it's interesting, if people don't want to save their own language, then it's very hard to see how it can be saved. My own family's native language is Gaelic. Mm -hmm. And now you have a strange specter of middle-class kids being taught Gaelic from scratch in Edinburgh high schools. Yep. Very unlikely to happen in the case of your languages. Well, I think the great, the, the best thing that could happen would be that that situation would be avoided, right? These All of these languages are kind of, have a declining number of speakers, but they're a long way from zero, especially when you compare the situation to somewhere like Australia, where you have a lot of very small endangered languages. Um, the minority languages of Tibet are not yet in that position. They still have reasonably large numbers of speakers. Most of them have about 20,000 speakers each. Um, most of the speakers all live together in the same place. They go to school together. Um, they're connected to each, to each other by social media. There, uh, you know, there's a lot of if you want to, there's a lot of infrastructure for hope there that could really enable these languages to live through the challenges to come. I think. So, could WeChat turn out to be a help in maintaining these languages, or do you see it as another homogenizing effect? I think WeChat is probably one of the best things that has happened for linguistic diversity in China. Um, as these languages, as these communities become increasingly dispersed, WeChat really enables people to sort of stay in the village no matter where they are in the world. So I know, for example, people who speak these minority languages and are studying abroad in, in the UK or in the US or they're in Beijing or they're Chengdu and they can speak their language every day with their family and with their classmates and they can really keep the language alive in very powerful and significant ways through these mediums. I'm Grant Smith and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China beyond the Beijing Beltway. I was joined this week by Louisa Lim and Gerald Roche. You can follow us on iTunes and on Facebook where you'll find links to Gerald and his research. Bye for now.